I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. Hi, I'm Lama Suryadas from Awakened Heart Podcast. And I'm happy to have you all along. We're all together for this ride. And you got me along. You haven't said anything about me. Me, me, me. Me, myself, and I. There are other people <laughs> who knew. Yeah. And here we have Raghavindra Das, my old Dharma buddy of the Marcus clan of our beloved community, the Satsang, Maharaji's children. Everybody knows me as Raghu, though, so we're going to stick to Raghu because uh, you know what happened. Okay, Rag, that's you know easier. how that, you know how that happened. Actually, I got the name from Maharaji, and then I got on a train, and I was so happy to have a Hindu name. I was like ecstatic. <laughs> I got on the train, and I was in a compartment with some Indian people, right? And they said, uh, "What is your good name, sir?" And I proudly said, "Raghvindra Das." They looked at me like I was a space alien and said, I know that feeling. Huh? <laughs> From then on, it was Raghu. Are you Indian? You're an albino or what? <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, it was a fun thing. Um, so uh, I'm just here, folks, as a, as a foil for Lama. And, uh, and I... Uh, Lama has a, Suryadas has a, a new book out, and uh, and I called him up and I said, why don't we do a podcast on your podcast? And uh, I'm acting as a sort of a facilitator because I went through the book and there were so many things that struck me and I thought this would be something to share with everybody out there. So um, I, I just wanted to do it and for us to hang out for, for a bit and... Uh, uh, one thing, though, I, I will have one announcement. Surya Das, Lama Surya Das, just joined Manpod Network recently, just really a few weeks, right? Yes. And, and we've been cutting up talks of his, and we're going to be doing extemporous uh, hangouts like we're doing right now. And he may even be talking to some of his brothers out there in the Buddhist world, and maybe a couple of Hindus if he can find uh, one or two. It's hard to find good Hindus these days. <laughs> but uh, so... There are more Hindus around. Yeah, there are more Hindus around. and Jews and all that stuff, yeah. Um, but uh, 
One of the things that I wanted to uh, announce on, on Surya Das's podcast is the fact that MindPod Network is going to do a crowdfunding to help support the initiatives that we have been taking and the growth that's been happening, which has been phenomenal. And uh, we have, uh, we've, you know what, Suridas, we found out that a lot of, of people that are coming both to the website and are, who are streaming and downloading the podcasts from, from you and Ram Das and Krishna Das and Sharon Salzberg and, and Jack Cornfield and, and this thing I do with David Silver with Mind Rolling. And by the way, Tara Brock is with us now. I, I don't even know if I told you that. And no, a couple of. That's great news. Those are some wonderful people. And yeah, yeah. So, teachers, uh, wonderful. And we got a couple of youngins, Michael Donahue and Chris Grasso. And uh, so we are going to. Nobody goes to websites anymore. I know. Nobody. I heard that. Right. So you got to have an app. So Where do they go? They go to on their cell phone. <laughs> Starbucks and get cell on their phones? cell phones and have their coffee. So you got to have an app, a smartphone app that works on tablets and phones. And so we need some help. We need to raise some money <laughs> to put that together so that we can probably, properly give everything that we have onto a platform that, that people can access. Alongside of we need help, just people people in the uh, doing the editing and doing the engineering and everything else we need. So that's, that's please go to uh, mindpodnetwork.com and you will see right on the homepage there'll be a, a beautiful banner with a link and we uh, you'll see the whole story of what we need and how we want you to help continue to uh, grow this community. This community is really incredible. Uh, I, uh, there's a... A large number of people after only about six months that are coming to the website and downloading and so on. So, all right. Well, that's it. That's my little. That's wonderful. This yeah. is a very important work, and I just want to add my applause, yes. and endorsement, and bows, because which we spiritual elders we need help from each other and others and the youngins too, especially with this new media and new ways of communicating. Because our mission is to pay it forward, is to pass on what we've inherited and pay it forward and pass it on and um, back you all and also get out of your way, but still be here and be there for you. And so it's very important to these new ways of communicating and accomplishing what I lovingly call true higher education mm. and educating the heart and soul, not just and nourishing the soul, not just feeding the intellectual mind. Right. The new book, Make Me One with Everything, just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago from Lama Surya Das, uh, and it's a uh, Sounds True, it's on Sounds True. You'll go to uh, Lama's uh, uh, page on MindPod Network, and you'll get all the information about where to get it, how to get it, but obviously, to go to Amazon and get the book there and use the MindPod portal to do so, and that will be another way you'll help support what we're doing. Uh, so, this... Uh, <sighs> There's so much here, and uh, I, I just want to, obviously, the key term in this book that you have coined is uh, inter-meditation. So I think before we do anything, I mean, uh, just one little quote, I, I, there's a few things I want to quote in this book, I just want to, because uh, I want to share them, but inter-meditating means meditating with quote-unquote other it's an intentional, intentional connection in order to realize non-duality. And please elaborate. Well, as usual, you got right to the heart of the matter, Raghu. So thank you. About the book and about this new wave of teachings and about intermeditation and co-meditation um, resonating or playing off of the venerable Master Thich Nhat Hanh's word that he coined, interbeing, mm -hmm. about our intrinsic interwovenness, interconnectedness, and interdependence with each other, but also with all and everything, not just with human beings. So I coined the term intermeditation, and also used the term co-meditation for meditating with or communing with, convergitating, mergitating, oneing, and so forth, and making intentional, meaningful connection every moment with all and everything, and seeing the light 
the Buddhaness, the divine, the light, the gorgeous beauty in everyone and everything, every moment. And not just trying to go inward, get away from it all, have a vacation, feel better, or narcissistically um, push things away, but more breathing out and just releasing and relaxing and being with everything. Whatever comes, Raga, whatever arises, being with it rather than again it, not against it, not pushing it away, just with it rather than again it. So, of course, it's good to have interiority and to look inward. We're so outwardly focused in our general upbringing in our society and in the modern world. But now I'm talking about after 13 other books about meditation and all kinds of things related to interiority. Now I'm talking about connecting and oneness and integrating this with every moment of life as like community, communication, communing, co-meditating, so that everything is grist for the mill of our spiritual <laughs> path, as our master and friend Ram Das <laughs> would say, if I remember correctly, memory yeah. being doubtful these days. <laughs> everything is nourishment for the naked, denuded awareness, as we say in Tibetan text, as Ram Das said long ago, everything is grist for the mill in spiritual practice, saying thank you, Baba, thank you, God, thank you for whatever comes and not being so grasping or, for that matter, aggressive or aversive, pushing things away, mm. being with it rather than again it. Mm. That's my definition of co-meditation mm. or intermeditation. And that makes us much more with it and with everything, including what's within us, Right. which is so much, so beautiful, if we only knew. Lama, I want to quote something that, uh, you don't mind if I read from the book a little bit, do you? I mean, No, I'm doing a lot of book readings at bookstores and other places, so it's a relief if you'll do it. Would you do some signing for me too and <laughs> yeah. send them here to Boston? <laughs> I'd be happy to. What, you, you should come to Asheville, by the way. We have a I wonderful should. bookstore, and, and we would host you, and we should do a program, actually. I'd love Thinking to do something in Asheville. Run. I was there once before with Awakening the Buddha Within the 90s. It's a oh, beautiful really? community. Yeah, okay, we're going to do it. Though people generally think of Buddhism as an introspective and meditating religion, His Holiness the Dalai Lama himself often says, humbly yet with genuine authority, that we need each other to become enlightened. After a lifetime of apprenticeship with extraordinary teachers, I have been astonished to learn of the profundity of ordinary people of all kinds and that true transformation, if it is authentic, meaningful, and enduring, must include collective awakening as well as affect systemic change. That is such, I, I can't tell you how that resonates. It resonates with what MindPod Network is all about. It resonates with, with what my uh, connection of late with millennial uh, uh, audience has been. I mean, we've been meeting them. Um, in, in fairly large numbers through Ramdas and the work I do with Ramdas, obviously, and, and the work that we've started to do with uh, MindPod, where that is an entirely, extraordinarily important concept for everybody and is so meaningful. So please, let's elaborate on, on what His Holiness has said here. Well, thanks, Raga, for calling that out of the book. It's it's a, something His Holiness the Dalai Lama said more than once, but you know people haven't picked up on it, and we're so attuned to or interested in just one small part of the Buddhist message, you know, about meditation or being quiet. But there's so much more, and it's so integral and also energetic and joyous, buoyant even. And His Holiness embodies that. And if you see him or see him in the media or hear him, and as he he's saying, we need each other to get enlightened. We need each other. We're interdependent. We're not separate. We need each other because we need to develop empathic, warm love and compassion. We need to open our hearts, not just liberate our minds, and so forth. And we're all in the same boat. We rise or fall, sink and or swim together. And especially these days, you mentioned the millennials and so forth. Self-growth, not to mention narcissism and selfishness and partisanship separatism, but self-growth and self-interest and self-development is, is, is fine, you know, but we have to go beyond that if we're going to sustain life 
on this endangered planet in these difficult, agitated times. And um, this kind of being with it or co-meditation, intermeditation helps us see through the illusion of separateness, whether it's partisanship or the separation between self and other or any kind of egotism or narcissism. And uh, of course, I like to think of the Occupy movement, for example. And I always say today, Occupy the spirit. Don't leave it to the 1%, to the Dalai Lama, or for that matter, Lama Suri does. He can't do it for you or do it alone. We need each other to complete this marvelous spiritual promise and this marvelous journey. And the, the 99%, us, we together, have to occupy the spirit, not just leave it to the 1%. And so I'm all for this collective awakening and this Mahayana or universal vehicle, big boat kind of path, not just the straight and narrow, trying to get away from it all and stay very pure and reclusive monastic type ideal. Beautiful as that is, it's a beautiful vocation for a very few people who tend to that. But for most of us, we have to be in the world, but not entirely consumed by it, or in the world, but not of it, as the saying goes. And I think this is a good way to do that. And it's a tantric way, it's a Mahayana way, but it's also a tantric way, opening the portals to oneness, to non-dual, to non-separation, wherever we are, not just on a holy day on the weekend or in a house of worship, but also in the garden, in nature. I, I'm teaching, I'm, I have a lot of natural meditations, meditating with water, meditating with fire, sky gazing with air and other ways, or with pets, peditation, as I call it, <laughs> or with your sleeping children, your sleeping teenagers. If you're a stressed out parent, check out the mommitation with your sleeping teenager, because there's no way to talk to them during the day. But while they're sleeping, your mommitation will help you survive the teenagers. Quote Lama Saridas on that. <laughs> I guarantee this. Check out the mommitation. <laughs> and so this is... It's a joyous, it's a fun message. It's a new way of co-meditating together. And we have to do this together, otherwise we're all going to fall apart. I mean, look at the partisan divide in Washington. We can, and nobody can get anything done. And this just, rep or the, the border wars and the incredible intractable problems we have in certain parts of the world, like the Middle East, et cetera. And so much of this comes back to our illusion of separateness, of separation, pride in us, looking down on them, whether it's the old caste system and class system and racism, or the new inequality that we see in the world. So I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us all to join hands and heads and hearts mm. and make this journey more deeply and directly together. I want to I wouldn't call it a diversion, but uh, one of the great things hanging out with you, Surya Das, is I just love hearing your the stories of your encounters. Uh, Surya Das has uh, encountered or been with some incredible beings, uh, and um, and in this book he he uh, does tell uh, quite a number of stories which are so poignant and they so much support what just uh, what Lama just said about uh, our connectivity and the importance of it but let's get to a like a, just a fine little some details like you talk about the first moment in this book that you met His Holiness the Dalai Lama before he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989 I believe and I, I think it was in the early 70s. It's funny because I I missed him by three hours when I went to Bodh Gaya to do a Vipassana course. And he was staying. There was a the best guest house uh, in Bodh Gaya. Somebody told me you got to stay there. And it was beautiful. I They actually gave him, gave me and Parvati, my ex-wife, who you know, his room. Okay. <laughs> This was, and I was there three days ahead of the retreat because I thought I would get a head start on meditating, which I knew nothing about. Uh, and so he actually had just left the room, literally a couple hours. And there I was sitting in this room. And, and so he, he is such a benefactor. That was, that's, of course, a silly little thing. But 
please share with us your first meeting with His Holiness. I don't think that's a silly little thing. Um, you never told me that. That's a great no. story. Was there anything left in the room from him? Absolutely. Even like a white scarf or some oh, no, flowers? Oh, no, nothing physical. No, unfortunately. Vibe, it was all vibe. vibe, yeah. Well, they must have given you that room because they recognized you in Parvati's, you know, Buddhiness. But you... <laughs> You weren't thinking about that, so you were waiting to go and meditate three days later at the Burmese uh, Vihar and get enlightened. So you, you didn't recognize your Buddhiness at that time, perhaps. But ah, um, uh, yes, I met His Holiness for the first time. I think it was June of 1972, and I had a letter of introduction from my first Tibetan Lama teacher, Lama Thibden Yeshe, who was one of the first lamas from Tibet to teach Westerners, and I was one of his English teachers in those days in Kathmandu. So he gave me a letter of introduction, and when I had to leave Nepal for visa reasons to go to India to get a new passport or do visa or something, I went to Dharamsala where he lives, and I asked and I presented the letter to the organization there. After a few days, I managed to have a private interview with him. It was a lot easier then. As you said, he wasn't that well-known. He didn't win the Nobel Prize till 89 and become so much more world-renowned. And what impressed me was how humble he was. This was not a, a virtue or a quality that I was brought up for, being the first son and the Jewish son of the clan. And I was supposed to be somebody important. And so much of our upbringing is to become someone and be someone and get ahead and compete. And of course, being a three-sport jock throughout my entire upbringing, I was very, very busy competing, uh, not to mention developing and affirming my ego or self. So I went and saw him. He was in the house that he lives in there, and I met him in his living room, his, like his reception room. And, I was used to bowing down before gurus, our guru, Maharaji, and Buddhist teachers in temples, you would bow three times. He didn't let one bow. He came and met me at the door and took my hand and mm. was kind of shaking hands, but also holding my hands with both hands and led me over to the couch. And we sat down sort of next to each other on the couch. It was unbelievable. And I was like a 21-year-old schlepper. <laughs> <laughs> with a backpack and I can't remember if I had a ponytail and a beard or just my usual afro at that year but and he talked to me and took you know it, it, it was like his presence was just so total he was just totally there for me and with me and there was no bowing and scraping and you know we talked English and he had a translator there but he talked English and he just totally impressed me as the humblest person. Well, he said things like, of course, first he asked, where are you from? And, you know, this and that. I told him i from New York and I just graduated from college. And I was, I was, I proudly told him I was studying Buddhism and yoga in India. And I'd done some 10 day insight meditation courses with Goenkaji. And I had been with my guru, Nimkroli Baba. And I was studying with Lama Yeshe in Nepal. And he was saying, very good, very good. And then he said, I'll never forget this. I wrote about this. I am so busy with working on behalf of the Tibetan people and being a, a leader and, and with my diplomatic and political roles. But I'm so grateful. But thank you so much for because you, you are giving all of your time to studying and practicing the path of enlightenment, which is for the benefit, not just of oneself, but for all beings. And I'm so hoping one day to retire and get back to that mm -hmm. full-time study and practice of the path of enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Mm. And I was like, whoa! It was like getting electrified, not <laughs> electric chair, but it was like, mm. not my hair stood on end, my body stood on the end of the little hairs. <laughs> it was a total figure ground shift. Mm. Like I was the llama and he was the, he was mm. the looking up to. Because he was so humble and selfless, mm -hmm. and seeing the Buddhiness or the divine in this young boy, this sincere seeker in front of him. Of course, now I'm a little more of an elder, even a spiritual elder to some people myself. So it's very touching, and I feel that way with the young, youngish people that come in front of me. Of course, mm -hmm. so it's a beautiful reciprocity and mm -hmm. lineage, and this is the way it should be. I'm not saying I'm like the Dalai Lama. I'm saying we all have that in our hearts. Mm -hmm. That's the message. We all have that in our hearts. Mm -hmm. 
but we do love him so much. Oh, my God, just hearing that story. Okay, I want to turn to something else here that's, uh, you might say it's a little topical because uh, we have, uh, as guru has been a word that's completely gotten eviscerated in our culture. Yes, he is the dry cleaning guru of our town. <laughs> you know, so now we have mindfulness gurus. I mean, it's mindfulness, that word has, so I love what you say here. For some, mindfulness has become mere mental calisthenics, calisthenics, I can't say that word, and concentrative exercises. When we apply mindfulness as mental floss, (laughs) a routine of daily mental hygiene to maintain physical and mental health and well-being, we miss at least half of its most profound spiritual benefits. These practical, secular, rational approaches to awareness practice are just the vestibule, vestibule, leading to the harmony, spiritual freedom, transformation, and ultimate enlightenment that the great wisdom traditions promise and to which their practical instructions guide us. Boy, that's well said. I, I, this you. should be a blog uh, in the New York Times. I mean, do you know how much, I mean, because I read a lot, because we talk about David and I on Mind Rolling, we talk about, you know, all know sorts of... I know what you're of, saying. Yeah. Thank you. I know so, it's out there. Yeah. You know it's out there. This is a counter, what's out there. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to, you know, right, balance what's out there. What's out there is good, but it, I don't know. I don't want to criticize everybody. What did I say? It's only about half of the benefits, yeah, you know, right. meditation, mindfulness, true spiritual practice, which is not just one thing like meditation or mindfulness or prayer, true or yoga. It's all that, the eightfold path, the eight-limbed yoga, a well-rounded spiritual life. Hmm. It's a great friend with benefits. Meditation is a great friend with benefits. And one of the benefits is mental health. Another benefit is physical health and wellness and well-being. But another one is emotional health and well-being. Another one is conscious evolution. Another one is, um, you know, energy uh, unleashing and freeing and deconditioning. So there's a lot of benefits, and we don't want to miss that Mm. by just making one technique like a mantra, TM mantra, or just physical yoga without devotion and service and the ethics or other or samadhi or mindfulness alone into just mere mental floss for daily hygiene important as daily hygiene is cleanliness is next to buddhaliness i'm sure (laughs) but it's still only next to (laughs) the buddha's message is original goodness not original sin we all are buddhas by nature we only have to awaken to who and what we are and that's what this kind of practice Into meditating with your higher self or your Buddhaness, your Buddha nature, or co-meditating with the Dalai Lama is one of my practices that I, you know, created or unfolded for this book and these teachings and these years to my students. First, meditating with the Dalai Lama in person, of course, but then also as an archetype in your in your imagine, creative imagination, visualizing him if you love him, looking at his picture being with him, breathing out into him and breathing in out of him in like, quote, tantric embrace, inseparable, becoming more permeable, receiving blessings, but also reciprocal, reciprocating, breathing out and breathing in, which is the basic practice, tonglen, or giving and receiving, sending and taking, tonglen, equalizing self and others, tonglen, riding the breath, which is the basic practice I use as a framework in this book for these co-meditations and intermeditations with a loved one, with your child, as I mentioned, or a pet, with, the nat- with nature, with an archetype or guru like the Dalai Lama or the divine, or it could be Jesus, whatever your archetype is, how you can tap into that anytime, any moment. Like our guru is always with us, even though he passed away, he entered Mahasamadhi in 1973. So we commune or co-meditate with him. We think about him. We practice mm. guru yoga and devotions and sing and so on. And he's right there. Mm. I know I probably said this before to you on every podcast that we do. I never sing without him being right in front of me. Uh, I, I, uh, he always shows up. I mean, he was always there. But when I start singing, I get less obscured. Mm. 
<laughs> he always Beautiful. quote shows up means mm. you know he shows up <laughs> when i'm more present what what should we say he shows up mm. uh there's the less my ego is there the more room there is for god guru right. buddhaness yeah i think that's the way to look at it yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, a wonderful separation. Yeah. We have a prayer, a genre of prayers in Tibetan Buddhism. It's not that well known I'm, I'm, you know, outside of Tibetan Buddhism. It's called calling the Lama from afar. It's a beautiful practice of Guru Yoga. There are different prayers and chants, some long, some short. Mm. But I always translate as calling the Lama as if from afar. Right. <laughs> I, I want you to... to uh, I still call him. He's right there. Yeah. Because I have his num his phone number. <laughs> I always call Kempo, and he's right there, and then he reminds me that he's been there all along. I was distracted. Right. Samsara is distraction, actually. That's a, not a bad definition yeah. of samsara or worldliness or the suffering of ordinary uh, existence. I want you to tell a story that's in this book uh, that really uh, exemplifies. Uh, somebody who's actuating much of what you're talking about, and it's uh, uh, you were in Boston at some um, an ecumenical meeting with rabbis, priests, and so on and so forth, and you ran into a minister from Texas. I think you said she was a Methodist, and during a break, uh, you started chatting. Can you tell the story of what happened to this woman? Right, it was a woman, I think. Yes, I would much rather if you um, read it out because then it'll yeah, be okay. clear and tight. Otherwise, I love reading. I'll go on very, it'll be a long story if okay. I tell it. Well, because I remember her and love her vividly. Really, huh? Wow, this is amazing. One night after Bible class, and this she told to Lama, she was robbed at gunpoint in the church parking lot. A man stuck a revolver in this gentle lady's face and demanded her wallet. The minister spontaneously opened her purse, handed the man her money, and said, I wish I had more to give you. I love you. The minister told me this in the most unselfconscious way. It was no big deal to, you, to her because her heart-mind had been so well trained and steadied over years, if not lifetimes. And you say, I think you have to love first and see second. The minister must have developed that capacity to love and then see through her own path. That's heart-mind training, and I want you to talk about that. She applied the mind-training slogan, I love you, or as Ramdas would say, uh, he, he start with, I am loving awareness, so then you can say, I love you. The right practice led to the right response at precisely the right moment. Okay, but what's, uh, and then you go on to say, how would you react if you were alone in a parking lot at night? <laughs> the masked <laughs> yeah, man stuck a gun, gun uh, ouch, right? But later in the book, so just you tell this part. Later in the book, you, this woman told you, uh, you tell about how this woman told you she she bumped into this man. Yeah, I met her later, a few years later, in similar circumstances, probably at some convention faith conference, and she bumped into this guy. She didn't bump into him. He, a, a, guy, a man came up and introduced himself and said, Hi, um, I can see you don't recognize or remember me, but I remember you. You changed my life. Mm. Wow. And he said, and she said, Oh, really? It's nice to meet you. And he said, I was the guy that robbed you at gunpoint and that you said, I wish I had more to give you when you gave me your wallet. And after that, I was so ashamed that changed my, it changed my life. Wow. wow. That's a true story, Raghu. Hon, that's, uh, that's so powerful. Wow. Th this so that's her Christian path, you know. I think we really need to think about Dharma large in a very universal way today and not be stuck with any limits, limited ideas about what's the only way Mm. For the goal, whatever, however we define it. Yeah, and this is so many ways to kneel and kiss the ground, like yeah. the poet Rumi yeah. sings. So and this we, this is so uh, important. And I said to you when I first went through the book, and I think we talked on the phone, and I said, you know, how much I really appreciate what you've done here with this book. And one of the things that's so powerful is 
how you have made this so inclusive. And, and you know, I don't want to be critical of other Buddhist teachers or anything. You, in this book yourself, say, Ramdas had come up to you and say, yeah, the Buddhists need a little bit more of a heart thing going on here. Yeah. And, and he does do that. We do. But uh, this is so inclusive. It just made me feel, God, right on that you've done this. From, and, and from someone like you that has done the kind of work you've done for decades. And uh, so I, not to go on and lodge you any more than I am, but... Um, uh, but this... No, but I think it's worth emphasizing this. And, you know, um, our hero, the Dalai Lama, always talks about non-sectarian, you know, and he says that in English, and we've all heard it. And if you hear him on TV, it's one of his, you know, messages, important messages, along with loving kindness and... Uh, human rights and universal responsibilities. Always talking about non-sectarianism and open-minded intolerance. So I think it's very important for us. And of course, hopefully this book represents that outlook. Um, if there are people who feel their way is the only way, I totally understand. I'm, I'm with that. There's no problem. But that's not how I see it. That's not mm -hmm. how I put it. Or, or to be more funny, I, I'm not that different. I, you know, my way is the only way to, but for me, it's the only way for me. <laughs> I'm not sure it's the only way for you or someone else. Mm. You have to find your own authenticity, and that's hard to define or call by any membership name or ism mm. term. Yeah. Um, you know what I'd like you to talk about, because this is, um, this is something we also talk about. Of course, we talk about uh, the MindPod also... Uh, what we all of this this collective family that we have and we call it our heart mind family and uh and there's one particular practice that i uh, obviously everybody out there you should get this book because there's a lot of different practical methods pa practices that surya introduces here but uh i love uh in, in particular this one and i'm Although I am fairly well read on on Tibetan Buddhism, but nothing uh, you, you can't I can't really shake a stick at what I really you know I I just love some of the personal story Tulku Urgyen Rinpoche people like that and of course His Holiness and it's just inspirational to me and uh, there's one practice though that I think it's important. I forget about Tibetan Buddhism or the isms here, and maybe you can uh, just get this translated for for people without having to think they got to go study Tibetan Buddhism, and that is lojong, and taming or mastering. And you you say retooling and refining our attitude, awareness, and habitual ways of thinking. That is a powerful uh, uh, methodology I think you should really talk about. Thank you for um, bringing this up. Lojong is usually translated, and it's very popular, it's one of the main teachings of Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism too, uh, as mind training, but again, too much mind. Um, mind training, it really means attitude transformation. It really means like um, mastering yourself and I'm not talking about being a control freak, but self-mastery, as we call it more in the spiritual tradition. I mean, refining your spirituality and reconditioning and deconditioning your habitual, unfulfilling, unsatisfying tendencies. So lojong is not a bad word to know in the original, so you don't get stuck with the dharma light, like a, like a alcohol-free beer kind of translation. <laughs> like mind training. Lojong is the heart of the enlightened leadership or the Bodhisattva way, the uh, altruistic spiritual uh, warrior for peace, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha to be, Lojong. And um, a lot of these teachings, these practices help us refine our spirit and our actions and develop, it's also character development, and be less selfish and more empathic. When you feel what others feel, empathy, then you're more moved. You move with them, you resonate with them, you're moving together already, you're more moved to help or, of course, not to harm, and you treat others as you would be treated, as a good book says, so important. But I always want to know how, and this is how you learn to treat others 
as you would be treated, as well as to treat others, you know, as they would be treated. Of course, you know, within the limits of knowing what's what, the wiser you are, the more, the better, or the more refined, the wiser and more appropriate and helpful or even enlightening one's actions and words and thoughts will be. So Lo Jung is mind training, cum, cum attitude transformation, cum spiritual refinement. And the main practice of the Lo Jung tradition, which is one of the mainstream practices of Tibet, is called Tonglen. Mm. I mentioned before, giving and receiving, mm. or sending and taking, or equalizing self and others, Tonglen, which is also not bad to know in the original, so you're not stuck with any one-sided definition. It's often seen as a healing practice where you you inhale the suffering or the disease of others and you give them, you breathe out your health, your joy. But it's really about reverting or reversing the tendency to cling to what you want and to have aversion or push away what you don't want. Grasping and aggression or aversion so that you see through the illusion of separateness. We do this by riding the breath, first breathing out and breathing in, which is an easy way of a metaphor for giving and receiving, but also a way to concentrate the mind and settle the distracting thoughts and feelings. And breathing out and breathing in, and we could do this alone or with another person as a co-meditation, or visualizing them or with a sick person, or just moving the breath in and out and paying, attending to that with focused attention, awareness, riding the breath, and then starting to do it with the light and uh, hoovering up all the darkness and dissolving it into the inner luminous nature of one's own mind or empty infinite openness inside and then breathing out the light. So instead of always wanting the light and trying to avoid the dark side and shadows of life, we're ready to just breathe in the dark, breathe in the illness, take on, let me put it in words that people who speak English understand, take on the suffering of others, as Jesus said. Take on their burden and lend them your strength. Lend them an ear. Be there for them. So this Tonglen is like that kind of caritas or self-giving or uh, Christ-like love. But we can actually cultivate it and then naturally we'll treat others like ourselves or like our beloved children that we, have, we want them treated. So it's a real uh, mind training, attitude transformation, spiritual refinement practice and anybody can do it just based on this riding the breath breathing in and out and if you do it with somebody else sitting facing each other like meditating or just visualizing it's a great way to start but eventually widening that circle to include others and eventually it's a great way to see through the illusion of separation with our enemy critic competitor our difficult boss or difficult employee or a difficult situation being with it rather than against it also applies to difficult situations like a dire diagnosis. Fighting against our headache just gives us migraines, but relaxing into it can be very liberating. You just talked about something. It just uh, sparked something in me. And, and by the way, uh, everyone, hang in for this whole podcast because I want uh, Lama to absolutely do a Tonglen practice with us at some point. So um, at, uh, talk about self-compassion, self-acceptance, but related to uh, the opposite, self-cherishing. I think there's a beautiful dialectic there. What was the last thing you said? Self-cherishing. Self-what? Self-compassion on one hand, yeah, and, and self-cherishing on the opposite. Oh, yeah, self-cherishing. Yeah. What that really means is like self-grasping or, or, or selfish narcissism. Yeah. So when we hear words like compassion, karuna, loving kindness, metta, maitri, and other, they, become, they can become like buzzwords, and it's good to know what is meant I'm not saying what it really means because people have their own interpretation, but what it's meant in Buddhism is uh, loving kindness means wishing well for others, benevolence. And compassion means empathically uh, feeling what they feel and being moved to help. So it's a little different. Um, but we usually think of it as having to do with others. But self-compassion is also important, just like we... 
we always talk about in the spiritual world, giving and generosity and unselfishness and service, seva, and so forth. And this is incredibly important. But also, we have to take care of ourselves. Um, otherwise, we just you know, it's like taking care of your car, your vehicle, our body and our life and our energy and our health is our vehicle. It's our soccer mom van. It's our station wagon. It's our it's our boat to carry us and the whole family of all who are connected to us where we're going. In Buddhist terms, to enlightenment. In other terms, to to heaven or to a better world, even to put it in secular terms. So. Self-compassion and self-care is not just the same as selfishness. And it's all a matter of balance, Raghu, as you know. The middle way. Balance and appropriateness. Moderation, but also moderation in moderation. Mm-hmm. And uh, flow. So self-compassion, loving kindness to oneself as well as to others. And so an acceptance, self-acceptance, not just acceptance and tolerance for others. Like we always hear the word tolerance in the spiritual field, and we need more of it, certainly, tolerance. But we think that applies to tolerating others who are different or worse, we think, who are wrong or something. You know, we have to tolerate those other religions or those other members of the other political party, even though they're totally you know, wrong. But what about tolerating one's own foibles and limitations and, and, and peccadilloes and so on, and being more self-forgiving. Mm. Let's bring up another word. It's not the most Buddhist word, but of course it's part of Buddha Dharma too. Self-forgiving. If we can't forgive ourselves, how can we really forgive others if we're so overly harsh and judgmental to ourselves? If we foolishly give in to the inner critic with those harsh voices that perhaps from our childhood that we still hear in our head, whatever they may be, we're never good enough, or we're never, I don't know what, thin enough, or doing enough, or, or however however it comes, there's something wrong with us. And um, self-forgiveness and, and, and self-compassion is so important. But it's not the same as selfish narcissism. So there are many people who are in the caretaking provision, and they become, instead of caregivers, caretakers, codependent. Mm. They're breathing out all the time, but they forget to breathe in. And they get ratio strain, they get burnout. And not just doctors and nurses, but also parents and just people who are giving and, and it also have to be taken care of. But selfishness is not what we're talking about or narcissism, which is in Buddhist terms what we call self-hyphen, self-hyphen cherishing. It means self-grasping, self-clinging, like being selfishness, being an egotist is self is too much self-cherishing. Not it's not self-esteem and self-respect. Self-esteem is good. We have to have self-respect to even think we can do anything. To have confidence is healthy, but to be a proud a-hole is too much. <laughs> not healthy. That's the difference. Yeah. And it takes discernment. A lot of this path, it's a wisdom path, not a belief system or a faith. It's a wisdom path to check it out and get the insights and wisdom oneself and discern the difference between brass and gold between the husk and the kernel inside and discern the difference between self healthy self-esteem and overweening pride and this kind of thing so self-cherishing is usually called a vice or selfishness in buddhist thinking as really there is no separate self anyway and uh, we're all interconnected and we owe gratitude to those who cared for us and we owe passing that on to those who we care for whether they're younger or you know or just sharing life and 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 a plate and and our land and our community together so we need to discern this for ourselves and make this kind of subtle distinctions if we're going to evolve consciously on the spiritual path not just sit around and try not to think and call it meditation. Meditation has nothing to do with trying not to think. There are pills and bottles for that, and it's not recommended anyway. <laughs> co-meditation means co-meditating with your thoughts. Being mindful or aware of thinking is meditation, not trying not to think mm-hmm. and, and trying not to feel. There's no point in numbing out. There are pills and bottles for that. Again, not recommendable, but maybe necessary occasionally. I don't know. There's always New Year's Eve where some anesthesia needed for an operation, I'm sure. But in general, mindfulness is the opposite of mindlessness. And who can advocate for mindlessness? So all of this is really about 
Well, Ramdas called it loving awareness. I like that. So it's not just so mental. Right. It's about the awakening, the heart mind, feeding and nourishing our heart and mind, body and soul, energy and spirit together, a collective awakening, not just self cherishing, selfish thinking, and not overly giving away ourselves like people pleasers who can't say no mm. and then are yeah bitter or resentful yeah. so much of the time mm. um my comment here and i find my own uh, when i think this self-compassion we had we actually had a retreat uh, with uh uh Ram Dass and Sharon Salzberg called uh, Compassion and Adversity, actually. Um, and in it, I, I, I was moderating it, and, and I brought up something that I thought was, and I bring it up again with you, so important to me, and you've just really described it, uh, but I just want to reiterate it, that self-compassion and moving away from that hugely critical, judgmental mind that we carry around, all of us carry around with ourselves, uh, is so, uh, I think it contributes to this self-cherishing, self-interest in a huge way because we carry that everywhere we go. And it you're does. talking it's about... It's an obsession. Yeah. So it's like reaffirming uh, selfish separateness, uh, listening to this inner tyrant. And instead of being proudly thinking we're better than anybody, which is one kind of egotism, thinking that you're the worst is just inverted egotism, yeah. but it has the same effect. It's a big problem. It may, it, it's unwholesome, untrue, and it makes your life miserable. And then, of course, you're miserable with others too, probably. Yeah. So self-compassion and self-acceptance, self-forgiveness is so important, especially in these days. We have such a technological society and hurry up, fast-paced world and, and so much electronics. And we really need to uh, cultivate the the softer virtues, the heart virtues, and not just the left side of the brain, intellectual, rational, engineering approach to life, but also, if you want to look at it this way, the right side of the brain, the intuitive, the holistic, the gestalt, the poetic, the creative, the, the softer side. But this is no, not, nothing new. Even long ago in China, um, maybe we were there together, who knows, Raghu, <laughs> in some previous life or dream. Chang Su, the great Taoist philosopher who first discovered the flow, the great Tao, he said, even then he was complaining about these days, like young whippersnappers today, you know, every generation, and now us, we complain about the young whippersnappers. They're not doing it the way we did it. Chang Su said 2,600 years ago, these days, Everyone knows the use of useless, usefulness, but who remembers the use of uselessness? <laughs> and then he pointed to one tree that was on a hill that was all curled and gnarled, and he said, look at that tree. It's the only one that survived from the forest because no carpenters could cut it down and use it for uh, planks to build with. <laughs> the use of uselessness. So it was still giving shade and fruit and punctuating the, the skyline. <laughs> The use of uselessness. Not that we have to be only useless either, but it's a balance. Yeah. Not always striving and working hard. Um, there is. Uh, so we're we're getting to the end of our podcast, Surya, uh, your podcast. And uh, but there's one little passage that I think people people ask this all the time, and um, there's a lot of feedback, and it's about. Why in the heck should we meditate? Just a simple thing, okay? And uh, and this is under your uh, the chapter around self compassion. By the way, folks, I I I mean I have notes throughout this book. I may have gotten through you know notes on maybe twenty percent. Okay, there's a lot in this book. It would take about five, six, ten podcasts to do it all. But I do want to quote this one thing. Um, and it's uh, when Zen teacher Koban Chino Roshi's long-term students gathered in Santa Cruz, California, shortly before his death, someone asked him, why do we meditate? And Roshi replied, this is the best explanation of this that I have ever heard read, okay? We sit 
to make life meaningful. The significance of our life is not experienced in striving to create some perfect thing. We must simply start with accepting ourselves. Say it again. We must simply start with accepting ourselves. Sitting brings us back to actually who and where we are. This can be very painful. Self-acceptance is the hardest thing to do. If we can't accept ourselves, we are living in ignorance this darkest night. We may still be awake, but we don't know where we are. We cannot see. The mind has no light. Practice is this candle in our very darkest room. Okay, folks out there, that is fantastic. Thank you for bringing that. That that alone is worth the whole book, okay? Go out and Thank get you. this book. Well, practice is the candle and the yeah. light. But, um, oh, my. The word practice should not be limited to just sitting or to meditating. It means being with a capital B, and with. we already are. So how, this is a way to see through any separate any feeling of separateness from that, mm. that mm. we already are. So let's you know, so, uh, savor, savor yes. it. Smell the roses while we walk the path. So, Suridas, would you now, I'd love for you to just take us through, you know, a short five-minute, we have a few minutes, but uh, meditation, if you w- wouldn't mind, uh, or, and uh, an intermeditation, maybe using the Tonglin, whatever it is you want. I'm not going to put suggestions. Okay. Um, since you like my story so much, I just want to quote one. Like, it didn't get into the book because I just heard this the other day. I went to... It was Buddha's birthday on Monday, and I went to a retreat center nearby to see a Lama friend of mine from Tibet, Jigme Kilung Rinpoche, who lives on Whidbey Island off Seattle and has a monastery in Tibet. Half the time he's there. And he he quoted one of our lineage Dzogchen masters, don't disturb your inner being, don't disturb others. And when he said that, I just practically levitated. It was like, Leave your mind alone and don't bother others either. It was so much about just being and accepting and being in the moment. Mm. Mm. So now let's do that. Let's light the candle of practice. Let's bring it home. Let's co-meditate together. There's so much joy and synergy and leverageitation. We're going to leverageitate, not levitate. We're going to leverageitate, co-meditate together, intermeditate. I'm going to chant a little just to get the mood so let's breathe together first so that we're riding the breath, tone lens style, becoming more permeable, less separate. Me and you, us, go from me to we, from me to tation, meditation, to we, to weditation, the we meditation. Breathing in together, and breathing out, breathing in together and breathing out, and just riding the breath and letting everything else go. Then letting go, friends, the secret is letting be. Letting go means letting come and go, letting be as it is. Letting go, letting be. Being with it, whatever comes up, in your body mind continuum in the present moment being with it rather than again it not against it jong chu sam cho krim po chu makye panang ye gyo chu ge pa nyam pa me pa yong ngone kandu May we all be awakened together, just sitting, just breathing, most importantly, just being as we are. Nothing more necessary, nothing extra to get rid of as we are, as you are, as it is. Intermeditating, co-meditating, mergitating together. Riding the breath, 
this breath, only breath, this moment, only moment, nowness, nowness awareness, the true Buddha within. Imho, wondrous, miraculous, yes. Just breathing in and aware of it and breathing out and aware of it. Awareness is all. Awareness is the higher power, the all-doer. Awareness with a capital A. Awareful, awaring, just fully present, presencing. Luminous, buoyant, aware, transparent, translucent, transrealescence. Just breathing and aware of it and letting everything else go. Imaho. Natural flow. The natural great perfection of things left just as they are. Imaho. I can't see you, but I can feel you. I can be you. This is inter-being, inter-meditation. I know what's going on with you. And I don't judge it. Why do you? This is a serious question. Why do you feel you have to judge it? And not just aware it. Aware it lightly. Not a burden. More like adornments one's own Halloween costume that we put on and can take off also. Aware it lightly, friends. Mm -hmm. 
May all beings awaken together and enjoy the luminous, great perfection of this gorgeous moment, this eternal instant for a better future to be possible for all beings, the great future that begins right now. Imaho. Ram Ram, as they wow. say. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, uh, Lama Surya Das, Make Me One with Everything is the name of the new book that we have been uh, reflecting on for the last hour. And uh, when you go to mindpodnetwork.com, go to Lama Surya Das's page and uh, you will see all the information. But just go up to Amazon. Go through our portal there to, to get the book uh, and uh, continue to listen to uh, Lama's uh, podcasts, some of which will be like you've just heard, an extemporous kind of hangout, some of which will be garnished from talks that he's given around the world. And um, we only exist with your support, so please do continue to support the network and the uh, llama's work and uh and again please go we're, we're doing a crowdfunding and, and we have lots of great initiatives and teachings that will be developed for uh for your um, great uh, pleasure and learning and uh and inter meditation is is really uh the concept fits exactly what it is that we have been uh, working on so this book is really uh, poignant in terms of the kind of work that we have been doing and uh, that we want to continue to pay forward as uh, as Lama said before so uh, thank you for I no, you have to thank me for coming on your podcast is what it has to be <laughs> <laughs> thank you Raghu for coming on to my podcast it's so good of you uh, I really appreciate it I couldn't do this without you we need each other to accomplish this great work yeah. together, this this yeah. seva service to the highest by serving the lowest and everyone in between seva yeah this that we get a chance to hang out away. that we get a chance to hang out like this is it's super it's total grace and it's I delightful. really appreciate it. so thank you. love to you and thank you all we can't do it without the listeners either yeah. otherwise you and I don't talk like this. <laughs> Well, <laughs> love everybody. We'll talk to you. Uh, Lama Surya Das will be back. And, and again, enjoy, and uh, we'll see you next time round. Thank you for listening to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases namaste Amen.